0: You are listening to The Therapy Podcast with your host, Schloimi Balsam. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Therapy Podcast. Today, I want to talk a little bit about anxiety disorders. Now, anxiety is incredibly prevalent nowadays. It comes in many different forms, and I want to see if I can zone in particularly... On trichotillomania, which is the diagnosis for someone who pulls out their hair. It's uh, compulsive hair pulling. But we'll see if we get to that at the end. Let's start from the beginning. What used to be called neurosis in the DSM-3 was transferred into the terminology anxiety. Um, it's been looked at different, different ways. Freud looked at neurosis as a way of pushing people out of mainstream life. But if mainstream life is still going normal, then they're not neurotic, right? For example, if, you know, if you're walking by a truck and it explodes and you're freaking out, that's that's not that's not considered anxiety. That's not neurotic. That is normal and acceptable. That's mainstream. He said neurosis is the ability to tolerate ambiguity. So th- if, if you can't handle anything that's a little off, that's anxiety. Um, he said a certain degree of neurosis is of inestimable value as a drive, especially to a psychologist. So you want a little bit of neurosis. Everyone should have a little bit of anxiety to uh, push you because it's a a powerful motivator. Carl Jung said that that neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. So he looked at it as an exchange. A person can can genuinely be suffering or... Have a neurosis instead. Breathing and anxious responses are connected. Anxiety is like a rocking chair; it gives you something to do, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. Right? Okay. So Carl Jung had, I would say, negative perceptions of anxiety. He didn't feel like it was. Um, I guess he didn't give it much validation. Like, all right, get over it, and let's get going. Right? It is twice as common with women than with men, there's more anxiety with Europeans, and triple as common in adults. Okay, so starting with general anxiety disorder, you have to have at least three of these symptoms. Restlessness, fatigue, um, a blank mind, irritability, muscle tension, sleeplessness, and you have to have it for at least six months. Before diagnosing GAD, general anxiety disorder, you have to make sure that it doesn't have hypothyroidism. Because the um, uh, what, what what causes anxiety in our brain? There's a little almond-shaped chunk in the back called the amygdala, and that's that what that's what triggers the anxiety. That's the engine for it. Now, in the in 1930, Heinrich Puber and Paul Buzzi, they removed the brain. Um, uh, they, they they went into a monkey's brain and they took out. It's amygdala, and when that monkey went back out, it was fearless. They released these monkeys out into the wild, and and they died from like bizarre things. They jumped from way too high, and they were hanging around tigers. They just weren't scared of anything. So anxiety is very useful, right? Uh, So Freud said that a certain degree of neurosis is of inestimable value. We need a certain amount of fear, and it's good as long as it's not taking us out of mainstream. Living, there was a famous case of uh, of someone who who had a disintegrated amygdala. So, amygdala. So uh, she didn't have any fear of being shot down, and she would um, make advances to people in inappropriately because there's social interactions were off. There it, there has to be an element of, of of shyness and fear and like wait this is inappropriate. There should be there should be some level of oh, but what if dot dot dot. The prefrontal cortex is the the balance, the balancing weight for the amygdala. While the amygdala is saying, oh my gosh, you're going to get shot down and everything's going to be terrible. But the uh, the prefrontal cortex says, hang on, that's irrational. If you're falling out of an airplane without uh, a parachute, then your amygdala will freak out and the prefrontal cortex will say, actually, yeah, no, this this is something good to freak out about. Separation anxiety, um, also called SAD, as are many anxiety disorders, is a social phobia. Public speaking uh, would, is the number two fear in America after snakes, which means that people would rather die than public speak, speak publicly. That's how potent this fear is that's social phobia there's like a persistent fear of performing in front of unfamiliar people and you're worried about their scrutiny it's it's the fear of acting embarrassingly Uh, in order to be diagnosed with the social phobia uh, you need to have six months of it and the symptoms need to show up only when you're performing some performers would freak out in front of 12 kids in a classroom but when they're in a stage with thousands of people, then they're fine. It's comorbid with major depressive disorder, and since alcohol t- is a social lubricant, it goes along with substance abuse. Part of anxiety disorder is selective mutism, where people refuse to speak when they're expected to. Uh, this can be this can already show up in preschool. So you have to first make sure that there's no any there's no hardware deficit, and the child is actually able to speak um we have to make sure he's not autistic which can come with a lack of a speaking ability and after boiling everything down selective mutism is someone who is mute because they are anxious now if you do encounter someone with selective mutism, don't call them out when they do speak. Right? Finally, this kid in the back of the class who hasn't spoken for the first eight months of class says something, don't be like, oh my gosh, you spoke up, that's so nice. No, they're scared of that attention. So just give it a uh, you know great job and move on. Calling too much attention will make them regret having spoken up and not encourage further participation. Separation anxiety disorder is, ver- is now prevalent with adults. While the only difference is that when kids need symptoms for four weeks and adults need it for six months. What is separation anxiety disorder? It's uh, stress when you're leaving home or something that you're very attached to. You're scared of the harm uh, outside. Worrying about negative events. It's a uh, refusal to go out. Fear of being alone without attachment figures. uh, Reluctance to sleep away from home or to go to sleep. This shows up when kids are acting sick in order for them to be able to go home um, they're scared to go to camp this may also be the diagnosis for someone who is very attached to their stuffed animal or uh, blanket specific phobia is someone who is scared of a very specific fear which it's excessive and it's triggered and cued by that specific situation or object for example a specific phobia could be flying, heights, animals injections uh, blood it can be it can lead to a panic attack and then cause avoidance for example there was uh, the famous study of little albert which was a baby that was taken by john watson and they let him play with a little white rabbit Um, and whenever little albert would, would play with this rabbit watson would come up behind and as soon as they were engaged he would whack a steel bar with a hammer And it made a terrible, terrifying noise. And then little Albert decided not to play with the little white rabbit anymore because every time he did, he had this terrifying sound. And that actually led him to be scared. And he had a specific phobia to any white furry animal. Uh, This is a classical case of conditioning. There's cytophobia, which is a fear of whales, even when they're on shore. Acrophobia is a fear of heights. Hydrophobia is a fear of water or storms. Claustrophobia is enclosed areas. There are fear of loud sounds or characters, and people are just terrified of Mickey Mouse. Panic disorder is a fear of fears, but it's, it's real. It's an actual fear, and there are somatic symptoms uh, heart palpitations, sweating, shaking, nausea, shortness of breath, tightness in the chest. Uh, agoraphobia is a fear of being stuck somewhere where you can't get out of it. So public transportation, open spaces and closed spaces, standing in a line, crowds, being away from home, that's enough. Fear of not being able to escape. You need at least two of those qualities to qualify for agoraphobia. There are a number of drugs that can be used for anxiety, uh, anxiolytic, which has a, a low dependency and overdose. But it can take a while to kick in. There's uh, benzodiazepines, which work fast, uh, you know, Xanax and Valium, but they have bad side effects and they have a bad reaction to alcohol, and overdose and dependent dependence is possible. So people will take SSRIs for a long term and take a benzo for uh, an acute episode. There's uh, alpha and beta blockers which are fast acting for cardiovascular conditions. They allow you to think clearly. So there are performance musicians and surgeons that use these to calm their nerves. There's barbiturate which is a uh, a downer and so it has really terrible side effects and it's basically not worth it. Elatonin is debatable whether it's effective. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, but when it's metabolized, it could interfere with sleep and exacerbate anxiety. And then there's definitely a dependence possibility when it comes to alcohol, for alcohol substance abuse. Now, there's, uh, as far as therapy, there's CBT. There's uh, systematic desensitization, progressive muscle relaxation, where they, um, they teach you to meditate, to clench and release muscles... And it's a calming experience. It helps you dispel the anxiety. There's also body feedback when you feel like your body is freaking out. And then you have a Fitbit or something that tells you, it rings up, uh, it vibrates. And it tells you what's actually happening in your body. And you think that you're having a heart attack, but... You, look, you, you can look at your watch, your phone, or your whatever is, is taking your pulse and realize, no, actually, I'm, I'm healthy, and, and I'm okay. And just the fact that you know that medically will calm you down. And it, you, don't, you don't run into that. Catch 22 of, uh, I'm freaking out, which means I'm going to have a panic attack, which is causing me to have a panic attack. So now you have a panic attack, right? Um, there's also thought stopping, which is well, you know where people have a rubber band on their wrist. Some people say that this is counterintuitive because it makes you think of the thought, right? Why am I pulling my rubber band? Oh, because I was thinking of that. Okay, now I'm thinking of it. Okay. Now, that being said, trichotillomania, or TTM, is compulsive hair pulling or hair pulling disorder. It, it's characterized by the long-term urge that results from pulling out one's hair. You can see people with bald spots. Uh, that's you know the clearest symptom of it. But you have to know why they're bowling it. There, there, there can be potential other reasons. You have to do a differential diagnosis to find out if there's something else that might be causing the hair loss. There usually is a brief positive feeling after pulling out the hair. The, uh, the client has tried to stop and failed, and it could really it, it doesn't have to be on the head. It could be anywhere on the body. Uh, although the, the head and around the eyes are the most common. And the hair pulling has, it has come to such a degree that it's causing distress. Very often, trichotillomania comes along and occurs with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. OCD is a mental and behavioral disorder where a person has intrusive thoughts and feels uh, the need to, to do some routine repeatedly. That's the compul- compulsion. So over here, the compulsion is to pull out hair. Your hair. Hair here. Anyway, OCD can be excessive hand-washing, cleaning, arranging things in a certain way, counting, uh, compulsive checking. There is an increased risk of suicide with people with OCD. Often people with trichotillomania will pull out one hair at a time, and these hair-pulling episodes can last for hours at a time. Um, while they can go into remission-like states uh, where, you know, oh, they don't feel like pulling out the hair for a days, weeks, months, and even years on end, um, but it it's just lying, that compulsion is lying in their dormant. There's also an additional psychological effect of low self-esteem, um, often associated with, you know, the friends being, uh, shunning them, and there's a fear of socializing because... There's a uh, an appearance, and uh, there's the potential of negative attention. Some people with trichotillomania will wear hats, wigs, or false eyelashes, uh, eyebrow pencil or style their hair in a way that they try to avoid that attention because there's different lengths of hair. I just read a study about a, a girl who started her uh, trichotillomania as a child when her mother, asked her to pull out her gray hairs and she just found that it made her feel good. And when her mother wasn't around, she did it on herself. There is a high overlap, um, besides for anxiety, depression, and OCD, with post-traumatic stress disorder. uh, The PTSD can trigger the hair pulling. There's also a school of thought that believes that um, there's uh, an addiction and it's negative reinforcement because there's a tension that leads up to the hair pulling and then afterwards there's a relief it can be looked at as a habit disorder there's one study that shows that individuals with trichotillomania have decreased cerebellar volume so that suggests um, that could be a difference between OCD and trichotillomania there is a lack of structural MRI studies about it but in the studies that we do have they found that there's more gray matter in their brains than those who don't have it. Right? There is a notion that the, the basal ganglia um, forms the habit, and the frontal lobe is in charge of suppressing and inhibiting these habits. So there's a, there's a battle going on over there. So we could say that it's a habit dis- disorder. Again, so we have to make sure before saying that you know defi- uh, declaring an ultimatum of trichotillomania that we have to make sure that there's no alopecia areata, iron deficiency, hypothyroidism, tinea capitis, traction, alopecia, alopecia, maybe alopecia, mucinosa, thallium poisoning, or loose antigen syndrome. These are all different reasons why hair might be missing on a person's head and body. And therefore, uh, once you knock all those out, then you'll be left to trichotillomania. It's defined as a self-induced and recurrent loss of hair. And there has to be some sort of a gratification and a relief after pulling it out um, that gets rid of that tension that builds up to it. Many individuals who are pulling out their hair don't even realize it. And they could deny that they, that, that, that bald spot was caused by them. They could deny that it feels good. Honestly, because they, they, they don't even realize that they're doing it. The difference between this and OCD is uh, deferring peak ages at onset, the rates of comorbidity, uh, there are gender differences, and uh, neural dysfunction and cognitive profile. When it happens when it shows up in early childhood, then you can regard it as a distinct clinical entity. Although trichotillomania can be present in multiple age groups, we need to look at it. Um, it's, it's easy to d- divide it up into preschool. Uh, pre-adolescent and adults in preschool it's considered pretty benign that's just you know little kids exploring it's like biting their nails or 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 thumb sucking the most common is between the ages 9 and 13 over here it's chronic and it can continue into and it continues into adulthood if it shows up in adulthood then it's most commonly stemming from an underlying psychiatric psychiatric cause it's not like they're focusing on pulling out their hair. It, it happens sort of in a, a trance-like state. And it's it's more automatic than focused hair pulling. It is very, very possible that there is an underlying mental disorder. And a psychologist, psychiatrist should evaluate and, and treat to try to figure out what the underlying cause is. And often the hair pulling can stop when those root conditions are treated. Psychotherapy is the highest rated successful treatment for trichotillomania habit reversal training together with medication works really well what HRT is the habit reversal training it's where the individual is trained to learn to recognize their impulse to pull out their hair and it teaches them to redirect that impulse and avoid this habit the medication alone is far less successful than done without the cognitive behavioral therapy, the HRT. This works even with children. Hypnosis can also improve symptoms. Uh, Since there is that uh, significant element of self-esteem and social anxiety, there is uh, acceptance and commitment therapy seems to be a promising way to treat it. There is about a 1% prevalence rate of trichotillomania and two and a half million people in America may have it at some time in their life. It's diagnosed in all ages, It's just more common between 9 and 13, and it's, it's most notable at the age of 12, 13. In preschool, the genders are about the same count. but As they get older, um, it's, mu- it's far more prominent in females between 70 and 93% being female. In adults, it's they're also uh, they far outnumber the males by about three to one. It's a cool diagnosis. Aristotle mentioned it in the fourth century B.C., but it was only first called trichotillomania in 1889, and uh, in 18 in 1987, the DSM officially put it in. Thank you, the American Psychiatric Association. So I think we did okay covering anxiety as a whole. There's a Ton more to talk about anxiety because it's so prevalent, and it kind of makes its way into every issue that we suffer with. But this trichotillomania thing really got to me. That's fascinating. Um, and one percent is is serious. It's two and a half million people is a lot of people. Like we have, a, like try to p- picture five thousand people. Okay, two and a half million. It's a lot of people. Anyway, um, it happens. It's a, it's a real thing. And if you see a twelve-year-old balding. That might not just be bad genetic hair, you know? Anyway, I hope you learned something. I know I definitely did. Thank you for learning with me. Feel free to shoot me an email at at askmetherapy@gmail.com. And as always, stay tuned. We'll try to keep them coming. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Peace. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.